seats. It's interesting that we are singing that, we're singing that song, Light a Fire Within My Heart, because the subject of this series for this month, and we'll see how it goes, and if there's interest in it, we may even move it to the next month, is On Revival Fire. What uh, we'll be doing is one week we'll be looking at the history of revival in Britain and looking at a revival move that took place in Britain, seeing what happened there, being encouraged by it. But then the next week, we will bring a revival sermon. And we're basing these on the two books. The first is uh, Colin's book on uh, Heart Set on Fire, that I've mentioned before. And today, we are going to be beginning by looking at a revival from the book that I wrote on Land of Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages. This is a book that takes a sample, chapter by chapter, of God's reviving work in Britain from the early Dark Ages right through to the Hebridean Revival last century. It's wonderful to study revival in the Bible. We did that a lot last week. And, but it's also good to see in history how God has worked in the different generations and often in times of great darkness to suddenly bring great light. And the principles of revival uh, remain the same. Although revivals can be very different in their manifestation, the principles of revival, such as prayer and hearts on fire and passion, these things remain the same. So today, we are going to look at what I call light in the dark ages. Light in the dark ages. And we're going to see how a number of men were powerfully used in the dark ages to re-evangelize Great Britain that had become paganized. And how these men, although they didn't have right theology in every respect, their hearts were on fire and their, in, and, and their prayers and their commitment to reach the lost was powerful and a lesson for us today. In fact, their, their work way back in the Dark Ages and their ministry is still affecting us today. We can still see the fruit of these things. So that's what we're going to do. Behind me, you'll see a couple of quotes from some of the men that we're going to be looking at to give you a feel of who they are. There's Patrick of Ireland, who evangelized Ireland, and he said this, what is more, let anyone laugh and taunt if he so wishes. I am not keeping silent about, nor am I hiding the signs and wonders that were shown to me by the Lord many years before they even happened. When I look at someone called Columba of Iona, that set a missionary center from a a small island outside Scotland, into Scotland in the north of England, to blaze a trail of fire, holy fire and the gospel. He said, in a time of great apostasy, with, with great uh, manifestations of occult and druids, he said this, My druid is Christ, the Son of God, Son of Mary, the great abbot. Then Cuthbert of Lindisfarne, O wretches we are, we are so dull and full of sleep that we miss the glory that is all about us. If only we would open our eyes. Well, a brief history before we get into the time that we're speaking of today. The Romans invaded Britain under Emperor Claudius in AD 43. That was at the time of the Acts of the Apostles. So while we read the history of the Acts of the Apostles, the Romans are invading Great Britain from the first time, only 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, as the Romans entered into Britain, soon on the back of the establishment of the Roman Empire, there came the Gospels. Christians spread rapidly across the empire. And we've got evidence that a Christian church grew and prospered through Roman occupation until the beginning of the 5th century, the 400s. But then what happened was, is that as uh, Rome grew in its, uh, and the amount of land that it took in its peoples, it also 
grew stronger and stronger in its self-centeredness and evil. The church became a state church in 380 under the emperor Theodosius. And we know about the emperor Constantine, a very famous emperor, who converted to Christianity. And all that was good, but one of the problems was Christianity suddenly became institutionalized. And it didn't actually hold back much of the immorality and the infighting and fighting for political power that was taking place. Uh, the city of Rome in AD 476, the unforgettable, Uh, The unthinkable took place in AD 476. Rome was overrun by the barbarians and totally sacked and burnt. And uh, people just couldn't believe what had happened. In fact, Augustine would, would write a famous book called The City of God. And the first half of it is trying to answer the question, how could God allow the barbarians to come in with such destruction and sack Rome? How could the barbarians do this to the Christians? And that was the beginning of the end, really, for the Roman Empire. Uh, Its power base shifted over from Rome to Constantinople, or what we call Istanbul today, the Byzantine Empire, which was uh, basically the Roman Empire shifted, took upon a more uh, Greek philosophy and, and view of things. But Europe increasingly succumbed to what we call the Dark Ages. Uh, the Roman influence in Britain began to wane and, and, and its, and its um, uh, power uh, w- was broken. And Britain became a nation, not really a nation at all. It was a, a loose tribal kingdoms. Kings and pagan beliefs were all over the Britain. It was a tribal place. You could go to different tribes all the way over Britain. There was no king of Britain. There was no Roman, Roman ru- rule. And um, until the middle of the 7th century or the 600s, Britain would remain largely pagan with just a few scatterings of Christians here and there. And what we're going to see is how two churches re-evangelized Great Britain. We'll see that from the north of Britain and from Ireland came the powerful Celtic church. Have you ever heard of the Celtic church? Powerful Celtic church from Ireland and also northern Britain in Northumberland, places like Newcastle and Durham, these areas. So from the top there came this powerful, into Scotland as well, powerful move of evangelism. And then we'll see also that from the bottom... Right down at the bottom of England came another powerful move of evangelization. This time from powerful Roman Catholic evangelists like Augustine, not the one I spoke about earlier, another Augustine who evangelized down. And out of this spiritual darkness arose men of God from both Celtic and Catholic backgrounds. And whilst they themselves were still a product of the superstition and tradition of this age, some of them were still very superstitious and, and their doctrine wasn't quite perfect and, 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 they, and we wouldn't be happy with some of the things that they taught. But you know, they loved God and they knew that Christ was the Savior and they had a gospel to preach. And we're going to look at some of these um, today. The first person I want to look at is St. Patrick. And uh, Patrick, or Patricius, was a Roman Briton. Although the Romans were no longer ruling Britain, many of the families had stayed, and so some of them had, had been there through the ages. And he was born in around AD 389, if you're interested, up in the Lake District. Anyone ever been to the Lake District? Well, that's where Patrick, this great Roman saint, was was born, and um, his father was was leading a district there, and um, he was taken by pirates on the coast. Uh, Irish pirates kidnapped him to sell as a slave, and they took him to Ireland, and they sold him as a slave in County Mayo in Ireland, and and Patrick was found himself in a terrible situation. And in this situation, he began to pray. He did come from a Christian background. And as he was a slave, 
he had prayed and, um, and, 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 and in this difficult situation, he turned to God. And in his book that he wrote later on his life, The Confession of St. Patrick, uh, he wrote this about what happened to him when he went to Ireland as a slave. And we've got this up on the screen for you. He said this, But after I reached Ireland, I used to pray many times a day. More and more did the love of God and my fear of him and faith increase. And my spirit was moved so that in a day I said from up to a hundred prayers and in the night a like number. Besides, I used to stay out in the forests and on the mountain and I would wake up before daylight to pray in the snow, in icy coldness, in rain, and I used to feel neither ill nor any slothfulness because as I now see, the spirit was burning in me at that time. It was as if the Lord had purposely allowed him to be taken by pirates to Ireland in order to train and discipline him in the spiritual things. If he'd been left there in a comfortable existence in the Lake District, I'm not sure he would ever think of the things of God. Uh, he, he would have too much comfort around him. It's interesting how sometimes God can allow us to get into difficult situations and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes these difficult situations are the spiritual makings of us. Sometimes in these difficult circumstances, we've got nothing else to do but turn to God. And in those circumstances, God begins to do a very deep work in our lives. Well, here's a young boy away from his family, taken by pirates, a slave in Ireland. And the only time he had and the only thing he could do, he didn't have any money, was to pray. And God, the Holy Spirit, gave him power. There came in his prayer life, it began to take on a power of its own self. He recognized it was the Spirit burning. I don't know about you, but I'd find it hard to pray in the snow and icy coldness. I mean, last week, um, our heating broke down in our home. You know, it always breaks down in winter, doesn't it? So our heat, And we didn't have heating for three days. We had little blow heaters, thank God for that. So we did have blow heaters. But, you know, it wasn't comfortable without... We didn't have... I didn't have a shower for three days. I wondered why nobody would come into my office and spend time with me. Didn't have a shower for three days. And it was cold and, and you know, and I was miserable about it. Well, look at this guy. He was in snow, coldness and rain because something was going on on the inside that was burning. In times of revival, as people turn to God, God will impart to them holy fire. And then the Holy Spirit began to visit Patrick in dreams and visions. A vision came to him, and in it, Patrick saw himself as a, a dead stone trapped in mud and unable to get free. He says, he that is mighty took hold of me, lifted me out of the mud, and set me on top of the wall. Whilst asleep with his flock one night, he heard a voice. You do well to fast. Soon you will depart from your home country. Behold, your ship is ready. God was speaking to him. God was leading him. God was watching over him. God was preparing him. Patrick had an opportunity to run away from his master and soon found himself back with his family in the Lake District, a radically changed man. While at home, Patrick had a powerful vision in which he believed he received a mantle on his life like that of Elijah. He said, the very same night while sleeping, Satan attacked me violently. I'll never forget it. A huge rock fell on me and I was rendered paralyzed, but felt strangely led from I don't know where to cry out the name Elijah. While I cried out this name with all my might, I saw the sun rising in the sky. The brilliance of that sun fell upon me and immediately shook me free of all the weight. I believe I was aided by Christ the Lord and his spirit was crying out for me. Patrick was to become Ireland's Elijah, preaching the gospel with signs and wonders and even having an Elijah-like experience on a great mountaintop where he... Uh, spoke against the Druids and the false religions with the God that answers by fire. Now, Patrick wanted to return as an evangelist, and 
Previous church missionary attempts had failed amongst the Irish. They weren't the most cooperative of people in those days. But Patrick had another vision from the Lord. We've got this up on the screen for you. A vision of Ireland. In a vision of the night, I saw a man whose name was Victoricus, coming as if from Ireland with many letters, giving one of them to me. Began to read the letter entitled, The Voice of the Irish. As I read the letter, I heard many voices, Irish voices, crying as if with one voice, we beg you, holy youth, that you should come and walk again amongst us. And I was stung intensely in my heart so that I could read no more and thus awoke. Again, we see in revivals throughout the ages, not only do people come from a difficult situation where God has done a great work in their heart, but God breaks their heart for the people that need to be reached. God needs to break our heart for the people of Britain and Europe. And until God breaks the church's heart for those that are in darkness, the millions of them in our continent, like he broke the heart of Ireland with a vision, unless we can hear the cry of the lost, if I can put it that way spiritually, we'll never answer it or feel impelled to go out with the fire of God. Well, Patrick went over on the strength of this vision and this call of God. People had discouraged him and said, you're just too young to go out there. It's a, it's a preacher's missionary graveyard. Those druids will chew you up and spit you out if you go over there. Everybody's failed to go to Ireland. But he went anyway. And as he went, he immediately hit Ireland like a holy fire. Now, Ireland was ruled at the time by 100 chieftains and all their clans, a little bit like Britain. It was full of different tribes. And there wasn't one single city in the land, only clan settlements. Druids, that's occult priests and their pagan gods, held the people in fear and spiritual bondage and were the most important people in Ireland in this period, advising kings and educating the people. Patrick went from foot to foot, from settlement to settlement, and clan to clan, and house to house. He preached the gospel. He prayed for the sick, and they were healed. And he showed such love in his manner, in how he treated people, because these were very harsh times, by the way. Life was cheap. But he treated everybody with respect, from the chieftains right down to, uh, to the serfs or the, or, or the poor people. And he began to reach hundreds and then thousands. He said once in his book, Confession, one should fish well and diligently, just as the Lord foretells and teaches, saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And again through the prophets, behold, I'm sending forth many fishers and hunters, says the Lord. So we spread our nets in Ireland, that a vast multitude and throng may be caught for God. Patrick was a great intercessor. I think I've given you a picture of that already. He had a powerful prayer anointing. And, and here in the next uh, um, section on the screen, we have a picture of him. And in this experience that he's having, the Holy Spirit is using him as a vessel of intercession. And he says this, I saw him praying within me, and I was, as it were, inside my own body, and I heard him above me, that is, in my inner self. He was praying powerfully with sighs, and in the course of this, I was astonished and wondering, and I pondered, who could it be that was praying within me? But the end of the prayer, it was revealed to me that it was the Spirit. I then remembered the Scripture but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for utterance. What a powerful experience of prayer. To actually experience that scripture in Romans chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us and through us with groans that can't be uttered, was actually using this human vessel to birth revival to birth prayer, and that he could feel the Holy Spirit moving to, moving to him. Revival is always a time of great Holy Spirit 
empowered intercession where people are used not just as vessels of evangelism, but also vessels of intercession to bring the power of heaven down to earth through prayer. Now, here's his Elijah moment in AD 432. He was in County Wicklow and uh, he, he was immediately obstructed by a local plan. But he went north and converted a local tree, chieftain. Then he traveled to a place called Tara. Now, Tara was a high place. It was a throne of Satan. It, it was there that the Druids believed that great magic took place. And the, and the supreme chieftain in Ireland had called his chiefs together at Tara to celebrate a major pagan festival at this Druid capital. And Patrick was determined to meet the power of Satan head on with the power of God. And this feast, this pagan feast, coincided with Easter Sunday. And all the chiefs were assembled and the people were assembled and the druids were assembled with their magic and, and witchcraft. All the most powerful druids in Ireland were here at Tara. And the chieftain decre decreed that all fires throughout the kingdom should be extinguished until the druid fire was lit in honour of the pagan gods. Patrick defied this command and lit a paschal fire or a fire to celebrate Passover on the hill of Slain on the other side of the valley, you see. So here is this one uh, hill mountain at Tara and then another one across the valley. And all the pagans are around this one hill and, what, and, and, and there is a, a edict that goes out, no one must light a fire till the chief druid d does. And so what does Patrick do? He goes to the hill on the other side and he lights a fire. And the Druids tell the king, and they say this, O king, live forever. The fire that has been lighted in defiance of the royal edict will blaze forever in this land until it very, this very night, we, unless we uh, this very night extinguish it. So the chieftains and their warriors and the Druids took 22 chariots to confront Patrick at the fire. And when they arrived, Patrick greeted them with these words, Some may go in chariots, and some on horses, but we will walk in the name of our God. A powerful confrontation took place, like Elijah and the Baals. And uh, the men attempted to put out the fire, but the fire was supernaturally unquenchable. As much water they poured on it, the fire just grew stronger. The Druids, through their spells and incantations, brought dark clouds to cover the hill. But Patrick prayed and the sunlight burst through and dispelled the demonic manifestation. One of the leading druids in a power display began to levitate high in the air as a demonstration of his power. And Patrick knelt in prayer and the power of God threw that druid against a rock, smashing his head in. The continued display of Holy Ghost signs and wonders eventually convinced all that were there that Jesus is Lord. And there was a spiritual awakening. Ireland was spiritually blown open wide for the preaching of the gospel. This is very similar to what we see in the book of Acts. These power confrontations that open up the situation for God. You think of Paul and, and the time that he was, uh, was it Crete or Cyprus? I always get up with the magician. He was on that island and there was a a magician, a Jewish magician, and he had the ear of the proconsul. And uh, in the end, by the power of God, the man was blinded. The leaders came to the Lord, the man was healed, and there was no more opposition of the gospel. We think of the time in Ephesus where Paul was preaching with power and the miraculous, and people rose up against him. Throw, beat him up, threw him in prison and then found out that he was a Roman citizen and were absolutely fearful that something had happened and no one dared touch him. The gospel again was, was open. Do you remember the woman that was a fortune teller, renowned in the area, kept going around, listen to Paul, he'll tell you the truth. In other words, they were going to listen to Paul because of some witch. And in the end, Paul cast the demon out of her. People were furious. There was again a power confrontation and 
things opened up for the gospel. In revival times, the supernatural no longer remains hidden, but it comes out both evil supernatural and the supernatural kingdom of God. It's not behind the scenes. It comes out. There are in-your-face power confrontations of the supernatural. And God always overcomes and breaks throughs. And these breakthrough uh, confrontations can bring hundreds and thousands and even a nation into the kingdom. These are principles of revival. Here's a prayer that Patrick used to pray. It's called St. Patrick's Breastplate, and it's in the book. And this is what he used to pray to himself. No wonder he was powerful. He used to say this. I bind to myself today the strong power of the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity of unity, the creator of the universe. I bind to myself today the power of his death, the power of his resurrection with his ascension, the power of his coming on judgment day. I bind to myself today the virtue of the love of the angels, in in the obedience of the angels, in the hope of the resurrection to reward, in the predictions of the prophets, in the preaching of the apostles, in the deeds of righteous men. I bind to myself today God's power to guide me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to teach me, God's eye to watch over me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to give me speech, God's hand to guide me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to shelter me, God's host to secure me against the snares of demons, against the seductions of vices, against the lusts of nature, against everyone who meditates injury to me, whether far or near, whether few or many. I invoke today all these powers against every hostile, merciless power which may assail my body and my soul, against the incantations of false prophets, against the black laws of heathenism, against the false laws of heresy, against the deceits of idolatry, against the spells of witches and druids, against every knowledge that binds the soul of man. Christ protect me today against every poison, against burning, against drowning, against death wounds that I may receive an abundant reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me. Christ in every eye that sees me. And Christ in every ear that hears me. See, it was as powerful as today as it was way back then. And he knew the power of God and the power of prayer. He founded a church in every settlement. And by the time of his death in AD 460, after 30 years of preaching, he had put in place 550 ministers and bishops to lead the pastors of the many church that he'd planted. He converted the Irish to Christianity without converting them to the Roman culture. He founded a fresh, vital Celtic church, free from political and social fetters. To be a Christian no longer meant to be a Ro- meant you had to be a Roman. And he sums up his ministry to Ireland saying, so, now it is in Ireland, where they never had any knowledge of God. But always and until now, always until now, cherished idols and unclean things. They are lately become a people of the Lord and are called children of God. Patrick's ministry lay a foundation for the Christian church in Ireland in the northeast, and his ministry was picked up by two men we're going to look at now, Columba and Aidan. Columba was born in AD 521 in Ireland. And even before Columba was born, an angel appeared to his mother, assuring her that her son would be a man of great beauty who would be remembered among the Lord's prophets. He entered one of the monastic schools. Now, these monastic schools were to train missionaries and preachers and church planters. And uh, he entered a monastery under the tuition of a famous uh, monk called Finian in Cloanard on the bank of the River Boyne. About this time, think about this. 3,000 young men were being trained for the ministry. Can you imagine the Bible school, our Bible school having three, and that's just the men, 3,000 young men being trained for the ministry. And, uh, uh, and, and Finian, however, chose 12 men. He had his cell, the leader of this great Bible training or, or evangelism school of 3,000 men. He picked his 12 out of the 3,000, and Columbo was one of them. They, they were to become known as the 
12 apostles of Ireland. Soon these men were trained and sent out and Columba left to start training centres of his own. He founded monasteries in Derry, Durrow and Kelv. At the age of 44, he left to found an apostolic ministry training centre on the island of Iona. We've got a picture of this very famous uh, pl Christian place called Iona. There it is, a tiny little island. And what was he doing? He wasn't content with the great ministry that was taking place in Ireland, but many of them were getting restless and they wanted to go into Scotland and northern, northern, northern Britain and carry the gospel there and plant churches and release pastors and leaders. And so Iona was just close enough for them to trade and then send out very quickly into Scotland. From out of Iona was not only the whole of Scotland or Pictland at that time, because it wasn't a Scotland, it was, there were, the major tribe there was the Picts, but also England itself was going to be reinvaded from the gospel power of, 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 of this isle. And um, this is where we might take a break now and say, well, what was happening down at the bottom of Britain? Well, we had, there's a very powerful book at this time called the Ecclesiastical, which means church, church history or ecclesiastical history of the English people. And this was written by a person they call the father of English history. His name, he was a monk, and his name was Bede. And what you see behind me is a picture of me at Bede, the father of English history's tomb. And that's his tomb in Durham Cathedral. And that, that's me there uh, behind it. And Bede wrote this book and this account of the different monks and the different evangelism that took place at that time. It's one of our main sources of history. Although his book is tainted by the contemporary errors of the time and superstitions, it gives a clear insight that despite superstitions and, and not quite having the knowledge that we might have today, there was a revival scene that was going on. He tells of the darkness of, of, of England and how... Pope Gregory I of the Roman Catholic Church, how he uh, visited or saw some boys in a slave market over in Europe, and uh, these boys were from Britain, and he asked if, they were, if the people there were Christians, and he was told that they were pagans. And this, this, is, this is what Bede tells us the conversation had. It says, Alas, said Pope Gregory with a heartfelt sigh, how sad that such bright-faced folks are still in the grasp of the author of darkness, and that such graceful features conceal minds void of God's grace. What is the name of this race? Uh, they are called Angles. That was one of the uh, tribes at the time. They are called Angles, he was told. That is appropriate, he says, for they have angelic faces, and it's right that they should be joint heirs with angels in heaven. From what province have they been brought? Daira was the answer. Good, for they shall be rescued, rescued de Ira from wrath. De Ira is, is Latin for wrath. So they're from Daira. They're angels, and he calls them angels. They're from Daira, and they're going to be rescued from wrath and called to the mercy of Christ. What's the name of their king? Aiella, he was told. Then, Greg, then said Gregory, making a play on the name. Aiella, it's right that their land should echo to the praise of our God and our creator in the word Alleluia. Gregory sent a group of monks to preach to the English, and they were led by a monk called Augustine. And um, halfway to England, they heard, uh, they heard stories about this barbarous, fierce, and pagan nation. And Augustine returned to ask permission from the Pope not to go. He changed his mind. But Gregory sent them anyway. They landed in Kent and they began to preach the gospel. They prayed, they preached, they ministered, they baptized. And soon much of the south of England heard the gospel and became Christian. Missionary zeal in the south and missionary zeal in the north. When we, we've already uh, spoken a little bit about um, Columba. And there's a couple of things I should mention about Columba. Started those train, um, 
Columba had a powerful prosperity anointing. Meeting some fishermen who had been fishing on the river sail, and they hadn't caught anything, he said, try again and cast your net into the stream, and you'll find at once a large fish for which the Lord has provided for me. They obeyed and caught a salmon of astonishing size. On another occasion, he was given a night's room and hospitality by a poor man. In the morning, Columba asked the poor man as to his amount of wealth. He says, I only have five small cows, but if you bless them, they will increase to more. Columba asked the cows to be brought to him and blessed them. You shall have, by God's grace, 105 cows, and an abundant blessing shall be on your children and grandchildren. All this came to pass. Columba was a Holy Spirit man and loved the presence of God. Once the presence of God was so powerful that for three whole days he neither ate or drank and would see no one. He remained in his house, which was filled with heavenly brightness. At night, people could see, coming out of the chinks of the doors and the keyholes, rays of surpassing brilliancy. During this time, Columbus saw revelations in Scripture made plain that had been hidden for centuries. Another of the famous evangelistic monks, a very famous monk actually in the north of England, was someone called Aidan, Aidan of Lindisfarne. Quite dear to my heart because when I went to school in Harrogate, I went to St. Aidan's Church of England school. And then when I went to university in Durham, I went to St. Aidan's College. And then when I moved to East Acton to be a Bible student here at KT, I lived almost very well, almost next to St. Aidan's Catholic Church. So it's an interesting, just a little bit of a thing there. Well, well, Aidan was a powerful minister of God. And uh, he uh, came over to the place called Northumbria. That's the sort of Newcastle area of the place today to preach. And he was from this Iona church planting center. And during a meeting at the Iona Island to discuss the situation, Adian spoke to an evangelist who had failed and come back discouraged. He said, brother, it seems to me that you are too severe on your ignorant hearers. You should follow the practice of the apostles and begin by giving them the milk of simpler teaching and gradually nourish them with the word of God until they're, until they're capable of greater perfection. He was sent to Northumbria in AD 635. He was a very humble man, but with his humility before God came his boldness and fearlessness before man. Again, in times of revival, we see that the fear of God falls off the church. Whereas we know that, generally speaking, Christians and churches and even denominations today in Europe are extremely fearful. You say, why are they extremely fearful? They're frightened to speak out many times at what's going on in the nation. Or they try to keep quiet about the truths of God. Christians often feel fearful in their localities. And of course, the enemy is trying to make us fearful. And to, but during a move of the Holy Spirit, when God revives his church, comes a humility towards one another and a humility towards God, but a boldness to preach the message and to expect God to be with us. The picture behind me is Aidan. Aidan preached with miraculous power, journeyed from village to village like Jesus. People got converted. Kings of tribes got converted. In fact, one king, Oswin, gave him a fine horse to travel. And then not long afterwards, when a poor man met Aidan and asked him for a few pennies, the bishop got off his new horse with all its royal trappings, used for the, meant to be used for the gospel, and gave it to the beggar. Uh, when the king heard about this, he said, My Lord Bishop, why did you give away the royal horse which was necessary for your own use? Have we, got not less, have we not many less valuable horses or belongings which would have been good enough for beggars without giving away a horse that I had specifically selected for your personal use? The bishop at once answered, Aidan, What are you saying, your majesty? Is this child of a mare more valuable to you than this child of God? The king turned over his mind what the bishop had said. And suddenly unbuckled his sword, knelt and begged his forgiveness, saying, I'll not refer to the matter again, nor will I inquire how much of the bounty you give away to God's, our bounty you give away to God's children. Aidan was deeply moved. When the servant found him later weeping and asked why he wept, Aidan replied, I know that the king will not live very long, for I've never seen such a humble king. I feel he will soon be taken from us 
because this nation is not worthy of such a king. And the prophecy took place uh, that very soon after. He moved in the miraculous power of God. There was lack of Bible training at that time. Um, there, there, was, there were superstitious practices and, and, and relics, and it was a bit of a mess, really. But in the midst of all of that, God poured out his power. Do you know, some, you know I believe in doctrine. I'm a Bible teacher. But sometimes you've got to ask yourself, what's more important? Correct Bible doctrine or a heart of passion for the Lord? And sometimes I've met Christians from various denominations and groups that, that know very little about Bible truth, very little, but they love Jesus and they have a passion for Jesus. And you think, wow, you know, they're, they're messing around with relics and masses and confessions, and, uh, but you look at their heart and they talk about the Lord and despite of the muddled mind, they have hearts on flame for God. But I've met people who could dot I's and cross T's, who know their Greek and their Hebrew and their doctrines and spend their whole time telling everybody who's right and who's wrong and you look into their hearts and uh, you just see coldness. So God answers where there's hungry hearts, even if there is at times muddled minds. Of course, God wants us to be strong in word and spirit. And... Um, uh, for example, the, the Mercians under King Pender invaded Northumberland or at the gates of the royal castle of Bambra. The Mercians attempted to burn the castle down, but as Aidan saw the smoke from Lindisfarne Island, he raised his eyes and hands to heaven, saying with tears, Lord, see what evil Pender does. Immediately the wind direction changed around the castle and the flames drove back onto the Mercians, causing them to abain, uh, abandon their, vision, uh, their, their invasion. This miracle confirmed the ministry of Adam to the kingdom, and many people found faith in Christ through it. He, Aidan was the first of a whole army of Irish evangelists schooled in the monastery of Ireland who came to do battle with the devil over English souls. Uh, Bede, in his book, wrote that after Abraham, sorry, after Aidan, many Irishmen came day by day to Britain and proclaimed the word of God with great devotion. Churches were built and the People flock gladly to hear the word of God. These red-hot Irish evangelists were church planters and prayer warriors. They had no fear of men, only love for them. Well, that's me, not that's my, my quote, not us. The last evangelist I just want to mention is somebody called Cuthbert. Again, in Durham Cathedral, you can go to the other end of Durham Cathedral and you'll find there Cuthbert buried. And um, he was a small boy during the ministry of Aden, and you saw Aden there teaching on Lindisfarne. It's called Holy Island. It's an amazing place to see. It's a little island just off the coast of Bamber in the north of England. And um, what happens is that, that, that when the tide comes in, it's cut off. But when the tide goes out, you can drive across to this island. And that's where Aden set up his monastery and his training center to release more uh, people, more, more men of God, into the harvest. And Cuthbert got radically saved as a, a young boy. And uh, at the age of 16, while he was looking after some sheep one night, and he saw the sparks of the fire rising higher and higher, soon a vision came upon him, and the very stars of heaven seemed to mingle with the rising sparks. The whole sky was aflame with light, which seemed to be rising from the direction of Lindisfarne, Holy Island, the missionary island of Aden. Cuthbert felt, he was Cuthbert felt he was having a Jacob's Ladder experience and wondered whether these lights were perhaps angels moving freely between heaven and earth, perhaps coming to escort the soul of a dead saint home. It seems this was exactly what was happening. As unknown to Cuthbert, the great evangelist Aden died at that very moment. Cuthbert was amazed at this experience, but the other shepherds, they never saw any of it at all. That's when he said, and the quote is there on the screen, oh, what wretches we are. We're too dull and full of sleep that we miss the glory that is all about us. If only we could open our eyes. Even tonight, whilst watching and praying, I've seen great wonders from God. Tonight, surely some holy person has entered into the bright realms of light. Yet here we struggle in the dark. Now, Cuthbert, like Aidan before him, loved people passionately, but he also would spend 
months literally alone with God on his island retreat of Farn. The Farn Islands, again, are just near Lindisfarne in Northumberland, and they're, they're quite uh, sparse islands, actually. And he would go over there out on a boat, and then he would just, they would just leave him there with provision for months on end. And you think, well, what's, what's that got to do with evangelizing the north of England? Well, he would spend nights in prayer. He would speak of ministering to nobody but the Lord for days and weeks on end. He would engage in powerful spiritual warfare with demonic powers, wrestling them into submission over the north of England through prayer and fasting at this island. Uh, he would walk around his tiny island. I've been on it and resist sleep and pray and pray and pray. The fire of God was on him. When, when, when he heard... Uh, yeah, okay, leave that bit. Um, okay, and here's a quote from a book on, um, on Cuthbert. The life of Cuthbert was almost continual prayer. There was no business, no company, no place, however public, which did not afford him an opportunity and even a fresh motive to pray. Not content to pass the day in this exercise, he continued in it constantly for several hours of the night, which to, which to him was a time of great light and interior delights. Whatever he saw, he seemed to whatever he saw seemed to speak to him about God and invite him to his love. His conversation was on God or heavenly things, and he would never have regretted a single moment which had been employed with God for his honor as utterly lost. When he came out of these times of prayer, he would gain an awesome harvest of souls and powerful miracles in a very short time. Monks like Cuthbert were not running from the world when they spent time alone with God, but rather they understood that a polluted river could not cleanse a contaminated sea. They reached deep and long into their own souls, consecrate their hearts, and then, as mighty tidal waves of purity break over the shores of a dark society with power and conviction. He used to mainly visit and preach in the villages that lay far distant high in the inaccessible mountains, which others feared to visit. And um, he preached a holy message, pulled down strongholds, and he, he wrought so many miracles by the power of God that he was known as the wonder worker of Britain. Again, in, in a book called The Fire of the North, it says about him that through his preaching tours, Cuthbert saw himself as a soldier of Christ, this was no gentle mission. It was into hostile territory. Often the country he traveled was already occupied by the old enemy. There would be opposition. There would be battles. Sometimes the conflict was subtle, unseen to anyone but himself in prayer. At other times there was open war, which was terrifying to see. Cuthbert knew that there were times when the only way to fight fire was with fire. To check the fire spreading from the enemy, he had to create a firebreak of his own. To be a light, he had to be willing to burn. Cuthbert always reminded people that it's hard to live life to the full if one is afraid of death. He was also more than an evangelist. He was a pastor. My last quote I'm going to read to you is this. He, quote, protected the people entrusted to him by his constant prayer and inspiring them to heavenly things by his salutary teaching. Like a good teacher, he taught others to do only what he first practiced himself. Above all else, he was a fire with heavenly love, unassumingly patient, devoted to unceasing prayer, and kindly to all who came to him for comfort. He, regard, he regarded as equivalent to prayer the labor of helping the weaker brethren with his advice. His self-discipline and fasting were exceptional, and through the grace of contrition, he was always intent on the things of heaven. And that's from Bede. So we've just briefly looked, there's a few more uh, things in my book about these men. But just briefly, I'm just trying to give you a taste of a work of God that happened many centuries ago. It began to bring Britain out of the dark ages. In life and belief, they were the exact opposite of their culture. They were totally and utterly counter-culture. They weren't trying to become like the culture, to win the culture. On the contrary, they were shining, blazing lights of the gospel. They defeated paganism successfully, 
with the gospel and re-pioneered Christianity in, in the north, the Celts, and then Augustine and his monks in the, in, in, in the south, and they assured a great strong foundation heritage for future revivals to be built on. They may not have had as much light as we have today in our knowledge of the scriptures, but the little light that they had, they didn't keep it under a bushel, but they took it out into the darkest place. And the little light and flame of the gospel that they had burned brightly. And as I've said, you can still go to Ireland and you can still go to the north of the England and the effects of these revivalists, these so-called saints, they're all known up there. Think of St. Patrick, you think of St. Patrick's Day. I hope that when you think of St. Patrick's Day, you won't think of people going down drinking Guinness all night now. The man was a flaming fire of revival that, that, that went through these things. And in the north of England, these, these names, Aidan, Cuthbert, Bede, schools are named after them. Young children are taught upon them. You know, all those years later, even today, in these various areas, they might not know fully the significance of these men as we've been looking at it through the eyes of the Spirit. But even today, the work that they did so many, many years ago has still got an impact on an increasingly paganized Great Britain. Next week, we're going to take a revival sermon uh, here and, and, and preach on revival. But then the week after, we're going to look at Wycliffe, the Bible man, and the power and how what he did, especially just outside London in Buckinghamshire, set something going that even today, again, you can see, it, see its effects. It's amazing. When there is a true revival that takes place, even when decades or generations after the nation might turn back to evil, yet the effects of that revival are still here today. Do you know, we can still feel the effects of the Wesleyan revival today. John, we can still feel, we can, I could take you and point you to things in society that uh, hospitals and schools and many, many things that, and, and the, the abolition of slavery came directly out of Wesleyan revival. Unfortunately, as uh, these pagan atheist people continue their attack on Christ, a lot of what we've experienced from those Wesleyan revivals, uh, Methodist revivals, is being attacked and eroded. And we've, we will find ourselves increasingly in the, in, in the situations before revivals that they found themselves in. Because often before a reviving move of God, the darkness seems increasingly dark. And it does look with the natural eye that nothing will change the march of the enemy. But that's exactly the kind of environment when everybody thinks it's all over for God and it looks like it's all over for a weak, insipid church. It's exactly in that environment that dry bones begin to live again. God bless you.